Father, we thank and praise you for what you have been teaching us this summer as we've looked through some of these psalms. We thank you for what they've modelled to us of the normal Christian life, of how to respond to a broken world, verbalising the reality of the difficulty of living for you. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that in a world of voices, we would listen to yours. And not just listen, but by your Spirit in us that we might obey. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I've, um, I've, I've no doubt that a good number of us over the years have, have had friends, have known people in churches who, who kept their doubts and their struggles and their concerns inside. They kept them to themselves and they ended up giving up on Jesus. Maybe they quietly wrestled on their own, they wrestled in private with matters of faith and no one really knew or really took their concerns seriously and and they just slowly slipped off and threw in the towel. So one of the things at Magdalen Road that we strive to be, I know we could do better, but we strive to be is to be honest. To be real. That is, we don't really want to give the impression that we've got everything tied up. That we're sorted, that, that trusting Christ is always easy. Because it's just not. We don't want to pretend. And so I take it we want to be a community, a a place where people can genuinely explore issues of faith, where where they can in an unashamed, unembarrassed way ask questions, share feelings, concerns, be open. Whether we've been Christians for decades and we suppress those doubts or simply we're looking in on Christian things. We're thinking things through. You see, in an honest community, a a loving, gracious, patient church family, we we want to model authentic faith. Not just when it's easy, when things are good, but in the hard times too, because sometimes people do struggle. They do doubt. Because at times we do look over the fence and we think, is this true? Really? Really? Those people over there, they seem to have so much more fun. Life seems to be so much more together for them. They find everything so much easier. They look more fulfilled. Things are are just less complicated. Stuff doesn't knock them like it knocks me. They climb the ladder quicker at work. They seem to have more friends. They're more popular. And then I read the articles on the internet and the angry blogs and I'm wondering, is God there, really? Am I chasing the wrong bus? Is there a bus even in the first place? This this Jesus person whom I've hung it all on, whom I said I would follow forever and go wherever he asks and do whatever he asks, whom I've staked it all on, was I right to do that? You see, that's something of the emotion of the question you get in Psalm 73. 
the heading, the title tells us here we have a believer, Asaph, and he is genuinely wrestling with doubts in his faith. He, he is questioning, is it worth it? It's probably not the kind of thing you expect to hear in church very often, one of your one of your leaders removing the mask and pouring out their hearts to you as he does. They're verbalising their scepticism, their disbelief, their envy of others. They let you in on how they're really doing. So let's listen to his song. What does Asaph say to us? Just sweep over first. The first half... 1 to 14, you see he is angry and cynical and envious and disbelieving and he is right on the edge of throwing in the towel. And the second half, 15 onwards, that there is the hinge. That's when it changes. He gets another perspective. He gains clarity. So first half then, 1 to 14, the problem, the doubt that comes from envy. Right from the very outset, you see how close he had come, don't you, to, to giving it all in. Verse 1, surely is God, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But verse 2, as for me, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He was so close to falling, just a whisker away. Whilst the Lord, he says, is good to his people who are pure in heart, Asaph knew he wasn't. And as for him, he had almost tumbled. Verse 1 is an encouragement. But it's also the problem. A bit like Psalm 44 last week. What he, he believes about God and what he sees in the world doesn't match up. If God is good to Israel, if God is good to those who are pure in heart, then, then why is there so much suffering amongst your people? Why are those who are not pure in heart prospering so much? It's likely verse 1 was something of a, of a creed, something said or sung at the temple, an affirmation of faith in God, but, but he looks around and there is this jolting discontinuity. The world doesn't work like that. It's not the pure in heart that prosper, Lord. It is the wicked that prosper. You're wrong. You see the issue? We, we sing the songs on a Sunday. And then we live life Monday to Saturday. And Asaph looks at the world around him and it's, it's almost as if there's inverse karma. Bad people get good things. Good people get bad things. And so he starts off by looking at them, verse 3 to 7. He describes what he sees in them. He paints a picture for us. Verse 3, they're prosperous. They've got money and houses and cars and and stuff. Verse 4 and 5, they're healthy and strong and fit and active and it seems as if they never get colds. They're free from common human burdens. They're never plagued by human ills. The the struggles that the rest of humanity has to deal with are not their struggles. Which means, verse 6, pride is their necklace. They parade around. They think they can get away with it. They don't fear any reprisals. They think they're untouchable. And so, verse 7, from their callous hearts come iniquity. Verse 8, 
Maybe you know people like this. People who sit at the top of the tree and they know they're at the top of the tree. And they think they're untouchable. It develops it then by what they say, the words they use, how they speak to others, what they say about others. They see verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance, they threaten oppression, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Malice, verse 8. Malice is, is the desire to cause someone harm. People are there to be used and abused. People are there to make me feel better, to benefit me. Verse 9, the arrogance. The ESV translation puts it rather nicely. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. They set themselves up as if they're little gods. Speaking against the heavens, claiming God's position for themselves and acting like the world is theirs. And verse 10 rubs salt into the wound. They're not called to account for what they do, for how they treat others. They gain a following and notoriety. It's often the case. Groupies who flatter them, who suck up to them and worship them. And it goes to their heads. They believe the hype, verse 11. How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? It's a damning picture, isn't it? The reality of some people around us. But we shouldn't be surprised by their attitudes or their actions or their words because in a sense, all sin is an assault upon God. It's wanting to be him, to take his position, to put ourselves in his place, to to be in charge, to not be accountable. From the very beginning, as far back as Adam and Eve, the nature of their sin was them, do you remember? Wanting to be like God. Remember what the serpent said? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, Psalm 73, their rebellion is seen in them becoming little gods. It's worked out. They put themselves in his place, in his position, and they compare themselves with him. And as Asaph looks at them, he almost believes it. We get a window into his heart. He's muttering, but he's not quite speaking. So, 13 and 14. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. His temptation is to speak out. But he keeps quiet. It's internalised. It's not quite there. The words remain in his mind, but not in his mouth. Verse 15. If. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. There he is on the edge of the precipice. And he steps backwards rather than forwards. He has, he has not betrayed God's children. That is, I take it, not led them astray into doubts and concerns. If, if I had spoken out like that, I take it the question for us then is, why did he step backwards? 
What is our solution to doubts and envy and confusion and discouragement and anger when we feel as he does? When we're asking, is it worth it? When those things have crept in, when we look too much like Asaph, what is the solution? It's changing your perspective. Perhaps better, it's regaining your right perspective. What's striking to me in this second half, as he regains this perspective, is that the solution comes from focusing on something else. It's looking elsewhere. So in 1 to 15, it's all about them and what they have and what he doesn't have. And it's just not fair. Perhaps like us on bad days, his, his perspective, his spiritual vision is limited and narrow and focused. They were what he chewed over in his mind and, and fixated upon and obsessed upon. They were what caused him to be bitter. It's all them. But then 16, his eyes are opened. And there is reality. And it feels like this breath of fresh air comes in for the rest of the psalm. He, he sees a number of things with real clarity. The first thing he sees is what's really coming. Verse 16 to 20. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How how suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes, when you arise, Lord. You will despise them as fantasies. You see verse 17, that, that is the hinge. He sees God. He, he views life again from the perspective of eternity. That's what changes it all. He, he stops looking at created things and he starts looking at his creator. The people he'd been envying, he still sees them, but not for who they are or what they have, but rather what they will be in eternity. He enters God's presence and he remembers that their status now is not permanent. Verse 17, it's their final destiny, it's life away from God. 18, they're on slippery ground, moving towards ruin. 19, it's destruction. Asaph had almost slipped, verse 2. They will slip, verse 18. But you see, if this world is all there is, and if God is not real as our culture shouts at us so loudly, and so we've created him rather than him creating us, then friends, make the most of the now. Squeeze all you can into this life because it is so short and each and every one of us are in a queue, slowly moving towards the front when it's our time to die. If this world is all there is, then do all you can, experience all you can, enjoy all you can, cram in all you can, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That is how many people live, that is how most people live. When you airbrush God out of the picture, that that is what you are left with pretty much. And so ours is a world of comparisons. Asaph is not alone in looking at what they have got. People are anxious and are scared and afraid and trying to make the most of the situation and grabbing what they can on the way through. 
And I'm comparing my pile of stuff with your pile of stuff and my looks with your looks and my holidays with yours and, and my salary with yours and my family with yours. And What did the psalmist see? What was his perspective? This world is not all there is. Which means we don't need to compare all the time. Because we know what's coming. We know that there's something better. Someone better. Paul, one of the later Bible writers, after Jesus, was talking about the suffering that comes with ministry, with being a gospel minister in the New Covenant. And he puts it like this. It's from 2 Corinthians 4. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see what he says? This world is not all there is. And so you don't need to just live for the now. You don't need to be comparing with them and what they have got. The problems of this world are light and momentary. And so focus on what is unseen and eternal and press on and keep going. I'd love to urge you, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, perhaps you're just looking in on stuff, I'd love to ask you a question. And that is to say, as you look at the world, what's it all about? What's the answer? Because as we prayed earlier, with Iraq and Syria and Ukraine and Ferguson and even Fair Acres Road just over there, we can add Rotherham for this week. What's it all about? It seems pretty bleak, doesn't it? What is the answer? Is this it? Or is the psalmist right? Is the Bible right? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is there life to come? Is there more to life than this? And if there is, then that changes your perspective on everything. So what happens is the psalmist's eyes are lifted from the horizontal as he's defined and shaped by others, comparing himself with them to the vertical when he's shaped by God's perspective. So he sees what's really coming, he sees eternity, but more than that, he sees what we really are as well. 21 to 24, where my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. He looks back to 1 to 15 time. And he sees that, in a sense, he was dehumanized. Almost as if, in the survival of the fittest, he's become a senseless and ignorant brute beast. So it is when we try to live apart from the God who made us. For the God we were made for, the relationship with him, we become less of a person. Less like the person God created us to be. 
One writer says this, Whenever we fail to learn from God and instead begin to trust our own contrary judgments on anything, we start to act like animals, which have no real awareness of God. He says, it was as if I was less of a human. I was a brute beast, senseless, ignorant. But then again, he gains perspective. He remembers his God, verse 23, he's always with him now. Verse 24, he will be with him forever and take him into glory. This world can seem so permanent. And it shouts to us of its permanence, invest everything into now, make the most of the now, be defined by the now. But there is more to life than that. He recognises the God who made him is with him and will be with him forever. Then he finishes the psalm with a refocus for us on what really matters. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want to say, if you remember one thing from this morning, make it this. Asaph says, they might have prosperity, they might have muscular bodies that don't break, they might be bursting with pride, they might seem to get away with it, But then he remembers who he has. And it's someone better than all of what they have put together. He has God. You see, if I'm not to concentrate on the alluring, intoxicating, attractive things of this world, and if I'm not to compare my pile of stuff with your pile of stuff, then what am I to concentrate on? What's it about? That's the final point from Asaph. What makes me rich? God. God does. Because we have him. It's that quote you sometimes hear on the internet. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. Do you see, what makes me rich is not circumstance or collection of possessions or the size of my house or the bank balance or car or... I'm rich because of a relationship with the person who made me and who is always with me and his name is Emmanuel. And I can look at the wicked and I can say, yes, they have a burden-free circumstances. Yes, their bank balances are rocketing astronomically. Yes, they treat others poorly. Yes, they seem to get away with it. But I have God. One writer puts it like this. I have God. I am held by his right hand and I am guided by his counsel. So when my heart fails, he is my strength. He is taking me towards eternal glory. He is what makes me rich. Nothing compares to what I have. And I can look around and honestly say, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. You are my refuge. It's easy to say, isn't it? 
we really believe this? Could this be said for you? If you're honest, is your life, like mine, too easily defined by verse 1 to 15 type thinking? Do you see what the psalmist does? He gathers up his situation now and his experiences now and, and his circumstances and he places them on a scale. And he weighs them against another reality. And it's a reality that far outweighs all of these experiences put together. It's the reality that changes your life, that turns it upside down, that transforms what matters. It's the reality that we have God. And you see, friends, when, when weighed against eternity and glory and forever, then the hardest of lies now will be seen as light and brief. And so we can press on. We can keep going. We can keep our eyes focused on whom we have, on where we are going with him, on being taken into glory. It's a glorious perspective to, to finish on. And it's one that we must ponder and meditate and trust in, not just once, but because our hearts are prone to wander. Something we think about every day. All that really matters is that we have God. And so verse 28, stay near to him. Make him your refuge. Tell others of his deeds. Because he is what really matters. And do not be far from him, verse 27. Because those who are unfaithful to him, who do not know him, will perish. The hymn writer Charles Wesley was reflecting on these final verses in Psalm 73 on his deathbed. And the story's told of him dictating a new song, a new hymn to his wife as he lay there dying. It goes like this. In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a hopeless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch one smile from thee? and drop into eternity. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we confess to you how easy it is to slide into verse 1 to 15 type thinking. How easily we can have the wrong perspective on life. We can think that the here and now is all there is. We can look at others and envy them and find confusion and anger. We confess to you our disobedience. We pray that you would help us please to trust you. Help us please to know your presence with us, that you are always with us, that you hold us by our right hands. 
that you are with us now and that you will take us into glory. And we pray that this truth would transform us. It would transform our perspective of ourselves, our self-image. It would transform the things that we live for, the things that we fear, the things that we care about. Thank you, Father, that you are with us. Change us, we pray, for your glory and for our good. Amen.